All right, what we're going to be looking at today, um, we're going to be looking at this idea of having confidence. This is what I think the next part of our passage in the book of Hebrews is kind of um, what the writer is looking at. And I don't know if you know, thought about confidence. I looked it up in the dictionary. It says it's a feeling or belief that one can have faith or rely on someone or something. Faith to rely on someone or something. And as I thought about this, I thought, who do I know has got confidence? And I thought of my two children. I've got two of them, two little boys. One of them is ill at home with mummy today. Um, the other one is here and has gone out to kids' work. But they show supreme confidence in me as their dad. Staggering confidence, actually. And you didn't have to teach them that. They just had it. From the youngest age, they would make demands of me as their father to just to have either attention or to do things for them. And they were in full expectation that I would comply with their demands, whatever they are. If they wanted my attention, it didn't matter what I was doing. I could be on the phone. I could be working. I could be talking to somebody else. I could even be preaching. And they would come and they would expect my atten- their attention, my attention to them. I remember one time when we were beginning the church, we were smaller in a room. We didn't have the stage or anything. And I was in the middle of preaching. And to be honest, I was doing really well. Um, the angels were singing. There was a sense of the presence of God. It was just incredible. My young eldest at the time, he came up to me. When I say eldest at the time, he's always my eldest, isn't he? He came up to me there. And he basically, in the middle of me preaching, he just walked up to me, got away from his mother. I blame her. But he got away from the mum. And he just grabbed my leg like this and said, Daddy. And I'm just like, I'm in the middle of something here. And he just said, look, he just wanted to, and he didn't, couldn't really speak. He knew daddy and he knew car. He had found this little toy car that was frankly a bit rubbish and naff. But he's like, daddy, car. And he was so excited to show me this thing that I had to stop, excuse me. And I had to deal with him because he just came, I want your attention. I'm going to have it. And he was completely confident that I would stop whatever I was doing to give it to him. It was incredible. Even this morning, as I was preparing this and just reading through, reading my Bible and kind of in that sort of getting ready spiritual zone because I'm coming to church, um, my youngest, Ash, who's five, he came up to me uh, and I'm obviously clearly engrossed in God's word. That, you know, even a five-year-old could work that out. But he comes up to me and then he goes, Daddy, draw me a submarine. I'm like, what? One, I can't draw. That's your mother's job, not mine. I'm not good at that creative stuff. But it's, Daddy, you draw me a submarine. So I'm like, okay, I'll stop that. Draw the submarine. Um, and he says, no, Daddy, it needs windows in it. <laughs> and a, per- and a uh, what they call it, periscope. Yeah, periscope, fine. And then, and then he says, now a laser on the front. <sighs> they don't, some reason, don't have, yeah, okay, fine. And then he just sat next to their coloring. But he had total confidence in me that I would just stop what I was doing and I could complete the task that was given to me and... To be honest, long may that last. But that's what my kids are like. And what we're going to look at today in the next section of Hebrews, if you've got your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, is the idea of having confidence in someone, and a supreme confidence that means that's not going to be faltered or shaken by anything, and it's a confidence in Christ. And this section we're coming to now, the end of chapter 10, if you've been with us and you've been following us through Hebrews, since about chapter 3 and chapter 2, the author to the Hebrews, after his initial kind of introduction, has been going through um, time after time, underlining this point that Jesus is better. That's what we call the series. Jesus is better. And he's gone through a whole bunch of things. He said Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's a better rest. He's a better high priest. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's a better cleansing and a better sacrifice. Jesus is just better than everything. And as he's drawing to the end of this time, he's actually basically saying we can have confidence in who he is and what he's done. 
a supreme confidence above anything else. We put our eyes and our focus on Jesus, we can have confidence. And he's rounding out this bit. When you hit chapter 11 of Hebrews, which we'll go on to next week, the tone changes and the direction changes the letter. So we're rounding out something here. And the big idea of what we're going to talk about is we can have full confidence in this life and the next because of who Jesus is and what he's done. We can have full confidence in this life and the next because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's our focus. And what we're going to look at is three parts of this passage today where the author outlines three things. It's a specific encouragement, a severe warning, and then timely reminders at the end. So the first one, a specific encouragement. If you've got your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, go to verse 19. I'm just going to read this first section. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful... And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to, uh, not neglecting to meet together as the ha- habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day dawning near. Specific encouragement. Encouragement probably isn't the best word. Maybe a better word would be something like exhortation. It's not a word we use a lot. And an exhortation is a very strong encouragement. Almost like you're getting almost to a command. You're giving some very strong words. And what the author is saying, he starts, therefore. So he's saying, because of what we looked at last time, which Jeremy talked about, about Jesus being the better sacrifice and the importance of that, because of that, because we know who Jesus is and what he's done, he's better. He says, and then he says, brothers. So he's talking family, he's talking to the church, the body of believers he's talking to. He's saying, because of this, brothers, what do we do? He said, we have a confidence. But what is that confidence based on? Is it anything in ourselves? We're confident because we're smart and we know what we're doing and we can get this sorted. No, he says a couple of things there. What do we have the confidence based on? It says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, which we've been outlining since sort of we started the book of Hebrews. Because of what Jesus has done, we can have a supreme confidence. Because he's opened that way, that curtain. Because his sacrifice was the last one, once for all time. He is now the great high priest over the house of God. We don't need any other. And he's never going to finish his office because he's going to last forever. Unlike the old high priests who died and had to be replaced and they offered sacrifices that would never work, if, ultimately. They were limited. Because of this blood of Jesus, and we have this priest over the house of God, that is the basis of our confidence. So we can have a huge confidence in Christ. And as a result of them, he gives some very specific encouragements to them, things he wants them to do. And there are three of them in that passage. And they're all preceded by the let us. And he gives them three things he wants them to do. He says, let us, number one, draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And if you read them, each one is linked to one of the three kind of great Christian virtues that they talk about, which are faith, hope, and love. You know it. So it says, let us draw near in faith, let us hold fast to our hope, and let us consider love. So let's go through them. Verse 23, let's, uh, let us draw near in faith. Let us draw near in faith. As a result of what Christ has done, which we've been outlining for weeks, that confidence on which we stand, who he is, his death, his resurrection, he is the risen Lord, the risen King. We are to draw near. 
That's what the encouragement, that's the exhortation. Draw near to him in faith. Now, draw near means, is an active word. It means to come closer. It means to get alongside. It means to shorten the distance. If I ask you to draw near to me, you'd have to move. There would be a sense of you'd have to physically get up and come closer here. And he's saying to you, draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith. That means we have to have faith in who he is, what he's done, which hope we've been outlining this, and the, author, the, the Hebrews has been outlining this chapter after chapter. You, you have to believe in who he is, you have to grasp hold of it, and as a result, we draw on this, we make effort. How do we do that? Well, we've got prayer is the obvious first one. We draw on this in prayer. By praying itself is an act of faith, talking to God, communicating with about things that are going on, reading his word, the Bible, actually doing that, trying to learn, meeting up with God's people, like in this context and other contexts, that's an act of drawing near. How do I get near to God? How do I move a step closer with him? Doing all those things, acting in response to what the Bible says, repenting of sin, Telling others, all those kind of things, serving the poor, loving our neighbors, actively drawing near to God. And we believe it. And it says, after that, it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, which means we can draw near with that confidence because we've been made holy by the blood of Christ. It's not based on our works. It's not like, am I good enough to draw near? Some people often think that. What stops us drawing near? Well, sometimes you think, I'm not good enough. I haven't worked hard enough. I haven't done my spiritual kind of workout this week. I haven't prayed. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. haven't. But actually, it's not based on your works. It's based on his blood. And that covers it all. The Bible says you're holy, so you can draw near to him. It says earlier in the passage, it says, Come forth the throne of grace with boldness, it says in Hebrews. So we draw near to him. And the reference there to the, the sprinkling is a reference back to Ezekiel 36, Whereas uh, the prophet's speaking, he says, I'm going to sprinkle you with this clean water and you'll be cleansed. And we've looked at Jesus as a better cleansing, how we're free from sins and all that that means. We'll get a new heart. The old heart gets taken out, the solid stone hard heart that the law couldn't change and the sacrifices couldn't cover suddenly has been transformed. We have a new heart. Born again of the Spirit, we're now alive in Christ. And because of that, we can move forward. So we are to draw near to Jesus. What's the next thing? It says, we are to hold fast. We are to hold fast. Verse 23, grab hold of tightly. That's another active word. You've got to do that. If you're going to hold fast to something, you have to do something about it. But what remi- this reminded me, um, have you ever been on, uh, to theme parks on roller coasters? Done that in the past. Done Alton Towers. I've loved it. I've been on Air and Rita Queen of Speed and Oblivion. And all those kind of things. And what happens is when you begin a roller coaster ride, it's usually fairly easy, isn't it? And you're like, yeah, this is easy. Look at the view. Look at all the people in the queue waiting for hours. What happens when you get to the top? And you get that tipping point. And, and it goes. What do you do? Oh, you hold fast. A lot of you scream like girls as well. Ah! And you're, and you're round and back, you hold fast. It's active. And then when you get off, you're like, yeah, you know, I, I did that while you're shaking quietly inside and trying not to vomit. And then you go around and do it again. Why would you know, why do that? And I had this experience recently. We took the boys to Drayton Manor, to Thomas Land, all for young kiddies, very tame, very dull. Um, but they loved it. Uh, and we went on this ride. Um, uh, I went on with Levi, and he wanted to go on this ride that went round and round and up and down. I said, yeah, fine, boring. 
yeah, I'll come on with you. I'm your daddy. We're, we're sitting there, and what happens is these little planes, and you pull this stick, and you can actually make the plane go up and down. It just goes round and round. You plane it up and down. And I was like, this is really dull, but Levi loves it, so we'll do it. Made me so sick. Oh, it was, it was horrendous. I'm suddenly like, I'm over 40 now. This is just the worst thing that's happened to me. And, and Levi's making go up and down. I'm like, top doing that. And I, I was holding fast at that point. And he's like, Daddy, we can go up and we can go down and round and round. I'm like, stop it, stop it. And he's like, no, Daddy, right. And then we got off and I was feeling so good. And I was holding fast to everything there, the rails as we walked out. And he said to me, and what, he said, the, wor- the, child, the word you dread as a parent with a child, the single word which my kids learned so fast and they kept using it, the word is again. Again, Daddy. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And we had to go on it again. And by this time I was feeling so sick I had to grab onto everything and eventually got to that point where you know don't tell anyone this I was like you go on your own I'm standing here and I'm watching you I'm watching you so you're alright and I kept doing that because I just couldn't because I was going to and I was holding onto the, the railings as watching it going around thinking just don't kill over don't vomit in front of the other kids because you're going to traumatize them but I felt so sick but I had to hold fast I had to carry on hold fast and they're saying and the point of the way is saying, hold fast. Hold fast to what? It says the confession of our hope. When the Bible talks about hope, hope is a sure and certain thing. It's not something that is vague and will it happen, won't it happen, which is often how we use hope. We hope things will happen. It's more, of a, it's more wishful thinking. There was a rugby game on yesterday here, and it was getting towards the end of the game, and there were a lot of English men and women hoping hoping something would happen. The Welsh were ahead. And we don't want to get partisan, but we wanted to win. Um, And so there was a hope. Are they going to score? Are they going to get that final try? Are they going to push the numbers over? Are they going to win? And lots of people were hoping, but it was uncertain. Would it happen? Praise the Lord, it did. And the England team won, and they beat the Welsh, and we can cry about that for ages. But the point is, that hope was uncertain. It wasn't sure. Would it happen? Would it happen? Who knows? But it did. But when he talks about holding fast to the confession of our hope, he's talking about holding something that is sure and certain. For he who has promised is faithful. Faithful. So we are to hold fast that. Hold fast to what it means to follow Jesus. The truths that we find out in the Bible. Everything we've read up to this point in Hebrews. He's saying hold fast to that. All that stuff about Jesus being better and who he is. You hold fast to that. You do not let go. You grip it. You hold it tightly. Like in a death grip, just that you're just going to grab onto that and never let it go. And the last one, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So considering is another active thing, but it's kind of an active with your mind, isn't it? You've got to think about it. Considering is to think, to dwell deeply on something, to turn it over in your mind, to kind of think, how, you know, really focus your attention and your energy on that. And interestingly, when you start reading that verse, it says, let us consider. And you think, what would be the end? What would you think the author would ask them to consider? If, you know, what, would that, what would he say? I want you to think really deeply about it. Probably, I'd probably say, well, I want him to think about all the things I've said about Jesus. You know, think about those things. But actually he says, interestingly, st- consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. I want you to think how to stir each other up to love and good works. Stirring one another up. I don't know if you like fire. Closet pyromaniac. I love it. We, have, uh, we bought a little fire pit thing that we have um, out in the garden that you can burn some coals on and we toast marshmallows with the boys. We love it. We get little sticks, marshmallows. They love it. Love burning the coals and it's great. But if you want to kind of generate the heat, what do you need to do with the fire sometimes? 
You need to stir it up. You poke it, you blow it, so you get the plate, waft it, get the flames going. It's stirring up. And he's saying this is the same idea. Stir it up. You have to think about it to generate that heat, generate that fire. Stir it up on how to stir one another up to love and good works. And he puts two kind of contrasting phrases in there. He says, do not neglect meeting together. So one of the ways you can stir one up is, is be in the same place as them. Meet together. Congratulations, you're all here. <laughs> yeah, did that one today. I didn't neglect meeting together. But it, it's that wider context of church community. Do not remove yourself. One of the great things the enemy would want to do to you is to isolate you. He wants you out of community, whether it's a Sunday morning context like this where you worship together and you hear the word preached, or whether it's a, a smaller context where you're just getting to know each other or prayer or, or whatever it is. He wants to isolate you. Because the reality is, go back to the idea of the fire pit and the hot coals, very hot. You stick your hand in it, you're going to get, your hand's going to get burned. The flesh is coming straight off. But if you take a coal out and you put it on the side next to it, it doesn't take long for that coal to cool down to be handled. It's surprisingly quick. It might still be warm, but you can suddenly pick it up without being burnt. And that's what happens. That's what he wants to do. Get out, take them out of the context so you're completely isolated and you will cool quickly. And he says, do not neglect meeting together. Don't do that. As he even says, sadly, as the habit, some are in this habit. They avoid the community of God's people. They avoid the church. They get out and they're just, they're isolating themselves. They're going to get picked off. He says, but encouraging one another, giving hope to one another. Why? Because there's a, a day coming when Christ is going to return and he's going to be dealing with all these things. And so we're to encourage one another. We're to think in our hearts, how do we encourage each other to good works? I know of a life group um, that uh, they did this recently. They, they basically, I think they gave out everyone's name in the life group anonymously. And they said, we wanna, you've got to bless the person whose name's on the list, on the thing. So you get someone's name from the group. And you've got to do something to bless them. What a great idea with your life group to do that and to encourage one another into love and good works. And I thought, what a great way to do it. Now let's try and encourage a few people. I don't know if they're here today, but I'm going to encourage them and I'm going to do it publicly. I know this person isn't because I've spoken to their wife. Joe, Joe Davies, Anna's um, husband, is not here today. He's ill, but he is involved in leaving our youth work. And this Friday, he took a big step forward in what they were doing. They did their first life group where they met together. They didn't do a social or anything, but they worshiped and prayed and met God together. There are some pictures on our Facebook, and from what I've heard, it was a fantastic time. And so if Joe's here, go home and tell him. Tell him to listen to the audio, because I know I do that anyway. But actually, he's done so well, and I want to say to him, well done, Joe. Keep going. Don't stop. You're doing a good work with those teenagers. Keep pushing in. Some of them, someone even brought something, contributed for the first time in a worship context. What a great time to, way to invest your time and energy. Another lady is Hannah here, Hannah Tipper. I didn't think I saw her. She's not here. I write all these names down and they don't turn up. They're neglecting the habit of meeting together, aren't they? <laughs> don't tell them that. Don't tell them. Hannah, lovely lady in the church here. She had some friends who were expecting a baby, not connected with us, not believers, but they were friends of hers. And she knows what we do in church is that if someone's expecting a baby, they usually put together real meal roads when the baby's born just to take the stress off the new parents for a couple of weeks or provide meals for them. And just, it just helps that transition when you know, the nightmare of a child comes into your life and everything gets exploded. And she said, I've got some friends. Can some of you girls in the church help us out? And we'll put together a meal rota. And she put together a two-week meal rota, loads of volunteers from the church. And this couple, who many people hadn't met, basically had food turn up every night, two weeks in a row, 
and blessed them and it was a wonderful good work and Melanie my wife said she's met them the couple in kind of like in car parks in the, the supermarket and other things and they're just blown away at these people from the church who just come and want to love them and bless them because they've had their, it's their second child and it's just a wonderful kind of good work in what they're doing and I'm just thrilled in what's happening Mike here when he came to the church he came to me and said, sure, I fancy doing a games night. I like playing board games. Is it all right if I do it? I said, yeah, you don't need my permission. Off you go. He's now running a games night. How often do you, is it once a month or? Every two weeks. Three weeks. There's a bunch of guys come together in the evening, just play games, hang out, a bunch of people outside the church doing it. It's just a good work. Blessing, loving, having time together. They play board games uh, and they have a great time. It's fantastic. I know a bunch of people are working here with the, the food bank not just contributing, many of you are, thank you so much for that, keep going, don't stop, there are so many people in need, but Jax and Philip serve at the food bank every Friday, kind of helping out there, I think Fliss is starting to get involved in that, that is a great good work, serving the needy of this town, and just loving them and blessing them, and trying to be good to them, Aaron at the back, over there, he has just, he's taken on our PA team, we asked him last time, he's done a fantastic job in recruiting people and helping us with the noise and the sound, the vigil, and you're doing a fantastic job in just serving us as a body, please keep going, we love it, encourage one another, stir one another up to good works, alright, I've got to move on or I'll just I'll get carried away, alright, what do we do with this application, don't stop meeting together, number one, write that down if you're taking notes, don't stop, what about drawing near? How are you doing with your time with Jesus? How are you doing? How are you doing drawing near? Assess yourself. Praying, reading the Bible, getting alongside people, connecting on Sunday mornings, being ready, coming to life group, just playing your part. Some people often ask me as a church leader, what's kind of the one of the one things you'd love to see happen in the church or what's one of those things you'd like to kind of do next step? One of my dreams, one of my desires, I've said, I always say to them, what one thing would utterly transform this church? overnight would be that if everyone came to every meeting on the front foot ready to go ready to draw near come here ready life group whatever we're all here ready to go front foot focus and that would just transform us as a body we're ready to draw near we've been drawing near all week we're going to draw near and I know life's busy life's hard life's hectic lots of things going on but that attitude of drawing near as a people will have a cumulative effect the hotter each coal is makes the fire hotter and hotter Um, as a body so let's just do that what about holding fast where do you need to hold on to right now where do you need to find the truth and believe it because that's what holding on to is find the truth and believe it and the enemy wants you to believe a lie God doesn't care God's not interested God can't do anything about it God wants you to suffer God all wants these things but actually that's the opposite God is a father who loves you he'll be with you through every circumstance every situation no matter how bad he is alongside you he is with you the reality is, as we've seen in Hebrews, he's already gone through it anyway. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us because he's been through it. He loves you. He's for you. He wants good for you. And even the messy, horrible situations in your life, he will turn them around and bring them for good because that's who he's like. He's sovereign. He is Lord. Where's the truth? Get prayer. Find someone. Talk to someone. Believe the truth. Hold on to it. What about considering? How are you going to bless and encourage people and say, keep going and what you're doing? I've seen this in your life. Even now, why don't you write down a name of someone? Someone in my life group, someone I know who I'm just going to go and bless and encourage and say, I've seen what you do. Keep going. Do it. Keep serving. Keep loving. Keep kind of keep on with Jesus. All right, let's move on. Next section. That was all good. This one's not so good. 
but that's all right. Verse 26, a severe warning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews, and it's arguably the strongest one that kind of comes towards the end here. Um, and we remember when we looked at it right at the beginning, we said there are warnings through the book of Hebrews, and they're designed to make us uncomfortable but not afraid. They're designed to, to poke us a bit and stir us up. And what this focuses on is the re- people who reject God's truth and the consequences of that Rejections. Okay, the preceding paragraph has basically outlined um, the appropriate response to all the stuff the author's lined out. This is all the good stuff, and this is how you should respond. You know, draw near, hold fast, etc. This is now the inappropriate response to all that good news. And he gives something that's incredibly severe, although when you read it, you actually realize he's not necessarily talking about the church because it begins with a we and it ends with a we and there's a section in the middle where he's talking about others, some outside. But he's, he's making this a very strong warning to the believers, to the body. And the idea of it is when you give a strong warning, you're trying to call someone back from something dangerous. When you're giving a strong, severe warning, you're trying to protect them from something that will be terrible. This happened um, to us uh, a few years back uh, when Levi, our eldest, was a little younger. and We were out in the park with his cousin, a little girl, kind of same sort of age, and so with um, uh, Mel's brother and the family. And we were walking in the park, and suddenly we kind of came aware that at the edge of the park, you, there was a drop and there was a big river there, which wasn't noticeable because everything went down straight away. And we suddenly clocked, okay, there's a river there. Where are the kids? And the kids were just playing. We thought, oh, we've got this. And the two kids, Levi and his cousin, saw a squirrel. And the squirrel was suddenly very interesting. The squirrel was scampering along the ground. And they started running towards the squirrel. And they were like, run, 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 run. And and unfortunately, the squirrel was right by the bank of the river. And so they were running towards this river, which was deep and would have been way deeper than they were. And it was kind of flowing. And suddenly, we had that moment of, Uh oh, we need to do something about it. And so here comes the question as parents, knowing your children are running for danger that could result in their death, how do you respond? How do you warn them? Levi, come here. Come on, I need to have a chat with you. Is that the best way to respond? No. Me and my brother in law, Levi! And I ran, and I can move quick. And I ran, and I was going after him, and there was no, and I was screaming. Melanie was screaming, brother-in-law was screaming for his daughter. So I was sister screaming for their daughter, and we were all just screaming. And they were just ignoring us. They thought the squirrel was the most interesting thing in the world. Who cares about the parents? Screaming. They were always yelling, and they just off there running. And I was running and running and running, and I was screaming and screaming and screaming at him to stop. And thankfully, I caught up with him. I grabbed him sort of by the scruff, sort of he had a hoodie thing on, and I managed to kind of yank him short of going off kind of the edge. 
And the point was actually, when you, the danger is so real, the level of warning goes up. When you're actually faced with something that is life-threatening, you have the amount of warning you give to someone becomes stronger and stronger. And here the, the author saying, actually, the consequences are more than just life-threatening, they're eternity-threatening. And so the strength of the warning is stronger and stronger and stronger. And he's talking about people here who deliberately go on sinning. Willfully, deliberately. There is no repentance, there is no remorse, there is no guilt. They know what they're doing and they're choosing willfully to go against it. And he said, actually, you're taking the sacrifice of Christ and you're just basically saying no. And you're carrying on doing it and doing it and doing it. And they're basically the consequences of that. There is a divine judgment that will come upon them, which is just horrific to think about and not an issue to take lightly. It mentions the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, which is actually there was those who reject the God of Israel. Actually, the punishment there was death, which can seem kind of very harsh, but actually you've got to remember what you're rejecting, the holy, infinite creator of heaven and earth who made everything, who is perfect in every way, and you're committing treason against them. And sometimes with sin, it's not so much the sin, it's who we commit the sin against. That's what it is. If I lie to you, that's bad enough. If I lie to a police officer, I might end up going to jail. Still just a lie. There are certain situations where I could lie and it could be treason. And actually it's who you're lying against. And if you're going against the holy, perfect God, the punishment is huge. And he outlines three things here. Kind of what, this, what, what in effect they're doing. He talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot. And we know from the very beginning of Hebrews, who's the Son of God? What's the Son of God? The God is the exact imprint of God the Father, the radiance of his nature, the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. This infinite one who's better than all these other things. And you're just trampling him underfoot like you're wiping your dirty feet on him, like the mat that you come in. That's how you're treating him, in essence, what he's saying. You deliberately go on singing. You've profaned the blood of the covenant. Profane just means to treat as common or unholy that which is holy. So you're talking about the blood of Christ, which we've talked about, we've preached about what that can do, the power in that, the preciousness of that, and you're just treating it like a common nothing. It's rubbish. Throw it away. That's, in essence, what you're doing. And therefore, you've outraged the spirit of grace. The spirit that causes us to be born again, alive in Christ, is kind of outraged at your outright rebellion. And when you kind of culminate those all together, there is a terrible judgment that comes upon it. At the end of the section, verse 30, he comes back to that we. So he's talking about those who were maybe around the church and have gone off. But he's saying there is a terrible judgment coming. And those quotes he brings from the Old Testament sort of underline that, that the sin of rejecting Christ and the inevitability of judgment is, is truly horrific. And we are not to take that lightly, not in our own walks with Jesus, but also those we meet. If someone is standing on the precipice here and they're about to fall and they're not, not, I mean, they're not aware where they are, what do you do with them? You can do lots of things. You can encourage them, try and coax them away. Come on, come this way. All right, you know, if they're not aware, you can pull them away. You can warn them, look, you're near the edge. Don't go any further. You could also warn them of the consequences. If you fall, you're going to die because there are rocks down there. There's a great gap. You're going. But the point is we are to bake these warnings seriously. Don't go near the edge. If you see anyone else going near the edge, warn them. Call them back. And you're ready to be strong about that. Don't mess with sin. Don't play with it. Don't go near it. Because the inevitable consequences of that are truly terrifying. Last one, timely reminders. 
verse 32. But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you always had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. Okay, two, two kind of paragraphs here. There's a, there's a look back and there's a look forward. He starts by saying, look back. And effectively he's saying, don't quit. It's kind of, there's almost a negative there. Don't quit. It's don't do something. He's saying that and he says, look back to your past, church. Look at what has happened in your past. And he's describing something that they've obviously been through. They have endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And it has involved being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions. Sometimes someone else has been there and the church has partnered with them and taken the afflictions on behalf of others and just stood with them and identified with them. They've had compassion on those in prison. Some have obviously been dragged dragged off to prison and they've stood by them and not rejected them and they've even done it it says with with joy they've actually accepted the joy because they've they is it they, they use a play on words they said you've lost your possessions but actually you've gained the possession you've kept your eyes on the possession which is christ you might have lost earthly things businesses or, or whatever goods but actually you've kept your eye on the possession and they've accepted it joyfully they've basically focused on what the good things are. The fact that actually suffering for Christ is a positive thing and they found joy in it, which we read as we read through the New Testament. We see the apostles and others going through this process. And he's basically saying you need to endure, you need to persevere, you need to keep going. He's basically saying don't quit before the end. Imagine we've got that fun run coming up. We've got people there. Imagine if you run the fun run and if you know the fun run, you go around, it's 8.5 miles and as you get towards the end, you have to go up Cardiac Hill which is a very long, probably mile and a half, slow incline. It just it keeps going. It, it never stops, is what it feels like. It just keeps getting up, and it's steeper and steeper. And you imagine you, you trek your way up there. You get to the end, the top where Four Oaks Gates is. You have a drink. and imagine, Then it's about a mile straight downhill, all downhill the last section. So if you think about it, all downhill the end. And there's loads of people cheering. And as you run into town, it's a great finish. But imagine getting all the way out of Carly Hill, suffering all that way, getting to the top, having your drink, and you start walking, kind of going down the the final bit heading into town and then you just give up you just think oh I can't be bothered now I'm going to stop and what the author is saying is look what you've gone through look what you've done look, look at it don't, don't reject it you've endured that you've gone through that don't quit don't give up before the end one of the most tragic things you can do is go through all your life and then just give up at the final section it's there the finish is there and you've stopped don't stop and then he goes on to the end, that final section. What's his other response? Verse 36, he says, keep going. Look forward. It's good to look, recall what's gone behind, but actually now look forward to what is ahead. Keep enduring. That word comes up again. And he says, what do you want to have look forward to? The promise that you have in Christ Jesus. The promise you have in Christ Jesus. There is a reward coming. It says we have to have confidence in that. Confidence in Christ that there will be a reward at the end when you make it. When you make it to the finishing line. When that day comes, 
when you say goodbye to this earth and you go into the next one, into eternity, there is going to be a reward for those who endured, those who persevered. Keep your eye on that. Keep your eye on that. And he finishes there with a really positive note. We again, verse 39, we are not those who are ones who shrink back and are destroyed because we have faith to preserve our souls. So he's talking to the church and saying, you're, you're going to keep going. You're going to do it. You're going to be okay. Keep pushing forward. But it's not a passive thing. It's not something you just, oh yeah, I'll sit on my bone. You've got to be active. You've got to be moving forward. Look forward. Keep going in what you're doing. Look back, remember all all that God has done, and keep going and look forward to the future and all that he has in you. And don't shrink back in the face of adversity, however that comes, but look forward. And ultimately, out of that, we have a confidence there. It says, in Christ and who he's done. Don't throw away that confidence, because that confidence is based on a sure hope of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that will never fail, and that will never let us down. I'm looking at the time. We're going to kind of wrap up. So do you want to just stand up? I want to just sort of try and pray and earth some of these things. Can we have the band up with me? Can you just close your eyes for a second? Okay, just close your eyes. I want you just to take a moment to reflect back on your life to date. If you're a believer here, think about your life you've walked with Jesus. Go back to the beginning of that, when you became a Christian. Think about what happened at that point, how God saved you when you were far from him. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, it says. When you're an object of wrath, it says. When you were far from him and you didn't care about him, you didn't know, you didn't want to know, but God saved you. And it says God made you alive in Christ. Just think about that kind of what that meant for you. The explosion of praise and adoration and thanksgiving that came from you. Think about maybe the time you made a commitment and you got baptized, which is our response to that. Where you said, do you know what, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow Jesus And there were those around you who prayed for you, stood by you, encouraged you. Think about leaders you've had, those who stood by and encouraged parents maybe. And they've said, keep going, keep doing it, keep following Jesus. Think about those people and think about what a gift they were in your life. Think about some of the friendships you've had, those who've walked with you as you've walked with Jesus. Who've just stood by you and been there, been in church with you, been in group with you, prayed with you, you shared with so many of them over different situations, different churches, different places, maybe even in this church. You think of people, oh yeah, they, they did that in my life. Think about things God has done in your life when he's answered prayers. Where he's broken in miraculously and he's provided for you, for your needs. It could be a material thing, or money or stuff, or a healing. It could be even sense of peace or direction or opening up a door or providing the next thing, the next step in your journey with him. Be so grateful for what he's done. Think about how you even got here today, this morning. Think about all God did to orchestrate that, that you're in this room right now. Because it's not a surprise. God's not like, oh, I didn't, wasn't expecting you today. He knows. He was here. God's done so many amazing things in your life. Think about the tough times of your life where 
God has just been by you. I've never met a believer ever who said, I went through a tough time and God let me down. (laughs) No, because God doesn't do that. He can't do that. He's a father who carries us through those difficult times. Think about all those, the ways he's provided, the ways he's spoken to you, given direction when you've been reading his word, when you've been praying, when you've been worshipping, when you've had that sense of his presence. The times where you've stepped out in faith, I'll try this, and he's met you there, and you've just been blown away. (laughs) You've been like, wow, I see who you are, Lord. Think about all those times. Think about all those times. Now, with all those in mind, look forward. Look forward to what's next. And the reality is we, in an earthly sense, we haven't got a clue what that looks like or how long that will be. It could be days, weeks, months, years, decades. We just don't know. But what we do know is that God will walk through us every step of the way. He will never let us down. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us completely by his spirit. He has his his people, the church, who will always walk beside us as well, whichever congregation you're a part of. And then think to the end. Think to right to the end. One day you're going to say goodbye to this life. And the reality is you're probably not going to know when it is, but it will come. And then think beyond that. When you actually get to see your Lord face to face. And the first words out of his mouth will be, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into your master's pleasure. Come enjoy my goodness of my kind of grace. Come enjoy eternity with me. Come enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Come enjoy the rest of my people throughout the ages who have worshipped and followed me and that you stand before the throne and you worship. That is what is in store for us who believe. That is what is in store for you. If you believe here, that's what's in store. He's promised here. There's no, there's no kind of, if. well, well why am I not good enough? Don't worry, Jesus was good enough. His blood is cover, enough to cover your sins. You are, you don't have to worry about you. You only have to worry about him and he's done it all. When he died on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. His job's done. Don't ever have confidence in you. Have a confidence in God and who he is. And Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth of that. I want to thank you for this people. Lord, I want to thank you that you are the God who will carry us through. You are the God who will carry us through. Because our confidence is in you, not in us. Thank you that you will give us grace to persevere, even in difficult times. Thank you that you've brought us safely to this point. In times we thought we might be overwhelmed by the wind and the waves. And you've spoken in, peace be still. And everything changed. Lord, I want to thank you for the grace. I want to thank you for the testimonies that we could have from this place of your, your love on our lives, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to say we're going to follow you all the days of our life. Lord, we say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said...